Well, good evening to you. It is Tuesday, the 9th of November. I'm Alec Hogg, and in our virtual studio with me, Nadia Swart and Justin Rowe Roberts, we're going to be bringing you the hour of power, what you need to know on what happened on the business and other markets today. Should have been other fronts rather than other markets, but we'll be bringing you the market report. We also have our colleagues at the Financial Times of London, as per always, uh, giving you the insights from the international community. This being Tuesday, Stephen Nathan uh, shares his wisdom with us. We'll be talking there about shareholder activism and uh, the unusual appointment by a company of a activist to their board of directors. And then the big story that Justin Roberts has got an interview with Peter Major on a, another bidder for RBH Platinum. Justin, that's a, that's a heck of a story, isn't it? Uh, RBH Platinum only, what, a week or so ago was minding its own business and carrying on quite happily. Then Impala Platinum came out with a very appealing offer for shareholders. And today that's been trumped. Very interesting turn of events, Alec. Uh, this morning, nor- both Northern Platinum and Royal Buffer King Holdings Platinum, they announced that Northern would be looking to acquire a 33% stake in the business. Where this differs from Impala's offer is that Impala was looking to take over all 100% of the business, delist the business, and consolidate it into Impala Holdings. What Royal B- Buffer King have come out and said is that they want their business to continue However, there are potential synergies with a company such as Northern Platinum who can take a large minority stake of 33%. And that's been done at a significant premium to the share price at around 180 rand a share. And what's happened to the shares as a result of this? Strangely, Royal Buffer King's share price has gone downwards. I did ask Peter Major and he found it extremely um, weird that that uh, did occur. And Northern Platinum share prices nosedived 15%. So he did say it might have something to do with that, but there could be more particulars or details within the corporate action that'll come out with weeks to follow and um, that may shed some light on, on why this has occurred. So if you're an RB Platinum shareholder, just hang in there because the details are not out for full, but uh, nicely put there, Justin. And then, Nadia, we've got a fantastic interview that our colleague in London, Linda van Tolberg, ex-political editor at the SABC, has done with Dr. Peter Crowcamp. I thoroughly enjoyed the way he unpacked the consequences of this local election and the changes and, and why it's such a watershed. No, I spoke to Linda and she said it was he was firstly like an incredible person to actually get insight from, but also his angle was how coalitions can be formed to not re-bolster the diminishing power that, you know, the ANC is now having to deal with. And that angle that you don't want to go into coalition with the ANC and make them look good because it might arrest the decline, which will now take them to well below 50% at the next election, is one that I haven't seen anybody else articulating. Interesting insights. Mm, super interesting. I mean, the dynamics of these coalition politics coming out on a daily basis, it's, it's quite thrilling to actually keep track of. And for Herman Mashaba and uh, his action essay and the DA, if they go into coalition in Gauteng, they better get it right. They better get Joburg right and they better get uh, Trani right because if they blow this one, well, that'll also give the ANC uh, some win from behind. So 
politics in South Africa has never been at a more interesting point, and we will be hearing more about that. Before we finish off, as you both know, I'm off to Cape Town tomorrow to go to the lockup for the mini-budget on Thursday. But ahead of that, I'm putting together a half-hour interview on a very special subject, celebration of South Africa's reintroduction to international sport. It is a cracker. And uh, a lot of tomorrow night's program uh, will be based on that. So make a point of joining us tomorrow evening. I can assure you, you won't be disappointed. Before we get to the market reports, uh, though, Nadia, do you want to just tell us what the business community have been reading, listening and watching? Yeah, sure. So on our website, business.com, the three top articles are a mailbox, uh, which is about it looking like the government has, has no money left to pay any pensions. It's actually really quite hard hitting. Um, it's definitely worth reading. Second is investments to avoid in 2022 and also how to make the most of your offshore, offshore forex allowance. From Business TV on YouTube, Treasury One's Andre Siliers as the RAND's volatility continues. Yesterday's flash briefing and the 500,000 investment challenge between Magnus Haystack and Pete Fuyun. And on Business Radio on Spotify, yesterday's Business Power Hour, David Shapiro on US Giants Moderna and Peloton's fall from grace and township property owner Jason McCormick on coming back stronger are the most accessed podcasts. Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. So let's find out from Nadia what's in the news headlines. President Ramaphosa has said that the biggest risk facing South Africa right now is that the country relies on ESCOM as the sole generator of electricity. Addressing a press conference on Monday, the president said that the country simply does not have a choice of moving from one provider to the other. The independent power producers are pumping in whatever they can, but the majority of them are still under construction, he said. The direction that we now need to move towards is to restructure ESCOM to have a separate generation entity that can purchase power from other producers. With a split, Ramaphosa said that a separate government-owned transmission unit would provide power to citizens. And coalition talks among South Africa's political parties are heating up, with the ANC now hitting back at the opposition parties who say they will not work with them. The DA and Action SA have publicly boasted that they will not enter into any partnerships with the ANC in hung councils. ANC President Sora Maposa, however, said that the party was not on its knees and desperate to work with the opposition anyway. Ramaphosa reiterated that the ANC was the biggest party in every metro except the city of Cape Town and Nelson Mandela Bay, though conceded that it was a difficult election. Mineral Resources and Energy Minister Gwede Montage has called on African nations to urgently form a united front to resist global pressure to rapidly abandon fossil fuels. Addressing the African Energy Week conference in Cape Town on Tuesday, Montasha said there had been a preoccupation with Africa to move away from its rich oil and gas resources, yet the continent is one of the least polluting. This is a sign of unsettlement by the rich countries where we are converted into conduits of ideas and developed economies, he said. Montasha's speech was the first he has made since South Africa secured a 131 billion rand coal phase-out deal with the US, Germany, 
Britain and France at the UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, which is ongoing in Glasgow. And now it's on to Justin for the Market Report. Thanks, Nods. The JSE All Share Index is up at 68,300. In the currency markets, the rand is stronger against all the major currencies to 15 rand 2 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 37 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 39 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,825 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost around 29,000 rand. Brent crude is flat at $84.30 a barrel. And Bitcoin is trading at more than a million rand per coin. In the financial news, Northern Platinum is to acquire up to a third in Royal Bufferking Platinum shares in a 17.2 billion rand deal that will be settled through cash and shares. The latest developments come hardly two weeks after Royal Buffer King and bigger rival Impala Platinum said they were in talks, which could have resulted in Impala acquiring the mid-tier platinum miner in a potential transaction that would have created a contender for the status of the world's biggest platinum group metals producer. Those talks have since broken down, with Royal Buffer King saying on Tuesday that its largest shareholder, Royal Buffer King Holdings, was opposed to the deal. However, the latest unsolicited offer by Northern Platinum enjoys the backing of Royal Buffer King, as well as the Royal Buffer King Nation. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, November 9th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The Federal Reserve has a new high-level job opening. SoftBank's CEO says he'll buy back stock. And Elon Musk asked Twitter if he should sell 10% of his Tesla shares. The majority said, yes, sell them, and pay taxes on the gains. I think this is a classic case of Musk deciding the terms of the conversation. The FT's Richard Waters will unpack what's really behind Musk's latest publicity stunt. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The Federal Reserve is losing another top official. Yesterday, Fed Governor Randall Quarles said he's stepping down next month. This comes after a trading scandal that led to the resignation of two regional Fed presidents. And it comes amid calls for Fed Chair Jay Powell to leave at the end of his term. Our Washington Bureau Chief James Politi said Quarles was already on the fence about leaving. So Quarles wore multiple hats at the Fed, and his time as vice chair for supervision so in charge of banking regulation, had already expired in October, and that term had already ended. So he wasn't doing that anymore. Um, and his time as chair of the Financial Stability Board, which is sort of the international body that deals with financial regulation, is due to run out um, at the beginning of December. So in a way, he was faced with uh, the decision of remaining as a sort of a regular Fed governor or leaving, and he's he's decided to leave. So, James, what does this latest resignation mean for Chair Jay Powell's future? Many progressive Democrats want him out, say Biden shouldn't reappoint him. Um, I think all signs at the moment are are pointing to some kind of a package deal in which Biden possibly reappoints Powell, but then inserts um, some more Democrat-friendly economists and financial experts um, in other positions on the Fed, including vice chair for supervision. That would be sort of a a way of balancing out the different interests within the Democratic Party in terms of how the Fed will be sort of shaped in the coming years. Yeah. So what does Democrat friendly mean in these terms? Because Jay Powell 
did cater to a lot of what Democrats wanted in terms of loose monetary policy at the height of the pandemic. You know, what are they looking for here? I think in particular on financial regulation, I think we would expect tougher regulation coming from the Fed in a second Powell term with new appointees from the Biden administration. I think that there's been a clear sign from Democrats on the Hill that they would like to see tougher financial regulation from the Fed. Quarles in particular was considered adopting sort of a light touch when it comes to banking regulation. And I think there'll there'll certainly be a course correction there. James Politi is the FT's Washington bureau chief. This past weekend, Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, asked his 62 million Twitter followers if he should sell 10% of his Tesla shares. A majority voted yes, sell those shares and pay the taxes. And Musk promised to do what the Twitterverse said. To figure out what's behind Musk's latest publicity stunt, I'm joined by the FT's Richard Waters. He covers all things tech and Tesla. Hi, Richard. Hey, Mark. Good to talk to you. So let's start off by doing a little math here. Um, Elon would end up selling about $20 billion worth of shares and pay about $4 billion in taxes. Richard, he can afford it. You know, why doesn't he just sell and pay? <laughs> he can afford it. He can afford anything, Mark. So I think that that's not the relevant question here. Um, with Musk, I think the question is always, what is he doing and why is he doing it? You know, he loves play games on Twitter. He's got the world at his, at his beck and call on Twitter, and he can weave these... Uh, fun games that he plays. And and it's left to the rest of us to try and work out what on earth is going on. The way he's presented this is he's willingly paying tax. He's saying, look, there's this debate going on about whether billionaires like me should pay tax on unrealized gains because we're not at the moment. And some people see that as tax avoidance. So he said, look, if you, the mob on Twitter, think I should pay my taxes, then tell me and I'll sell some shares and pay the tax. So that's how he's he's couched it. And it makes it sound like, you know, he's willing to pay tax if Twitter says he should. I mean, he's trolling his enemies. You know, that's one thing he uses Twitter for. He's trolling all the critics who say, you know, you're avoiding taxes. And he's also getting this cover for selling his shares. So, you know, it's quite a clever thing. So, Richard, as you've reported, Musk says he's taken no salary or bonus from any of his companies, but he's made billions of dollars by exercising stock options. Could that help explain what's going on now? Well, Musk is in line to cash in a huge amount of stock options. Now, when he exercises those options, he will pay income tax. At least that's what most people do with options. And we assume he, you know, he doesn't have any clever tricks up his sleeve to avoid that. So he is facing a huge tax bill based on the options Tesla's given him, you know, sometime probably next year. So he needs cash. He needs cash to pay the tax on the options that are coming up. So in some ways, you know, maybe he's just selling a, a bunch of shares he already owns, paying some tax on that, raising some money in preparation for a much bigger payday down the road. So let's just play a little game, a little hypothetical here, Richard. What happens if Musk says get lost to the 58% of Twitter followers who voted for him to sell his stock and he doesn't sell? Could that damage his public image or or the public power he has at all? <laughs> I think the bigger question, the more interesting question is whether he's exposed himself to any 
litigation risk or any regulatory risk here for two reasons. I mean, first of all, you know, what he's done is essentially promised to sell shares if certain conditions are met. That condition has now been met. So if I was a Tesla shareholder, I might argue, well, the CEO promised he'd sell, therefore he'd sell, therefore I think the shares are worth less. If he doesn't sell, then you could say he's misled the market and he might expose himself to a lawsuit. The other, the other question is what the SEC will think about this, you know, and Musk has trolled the, the securities regulators for, for years. He's currently obligated to have any tweets cleared with the company. They might affect his own holdings in the company. So you could say that, you know, by throwing something open to Twitter, that's exactly what he's done. And so, therefore, did he follow the SEC agreement? Has he got clearance in the company on this? So, you know, Musk's tweets, obviously, are Musk's tweets, and he seems to get away with most things. But if the regulators really want to come down on him, he might have exposed himself here. Richard Waters is the FT's West Coast editor. He covers all things tech. Thanks, Richard. Uh, Good to talk to you, Mark. As one prominent founder promises to sell shares in his company, another says he'll buy them back. SoftBank founder Masayoshi Son yesterday promised to repurchase nearly $9 billion of SoftBank shares over the next 12 months. This comes after pressure from investors to boost the company's sagging share price. It's fallen in part because of big losses in SoftBank's Vision Fund, which is heavily invested in Chinese tech companies. The FT's Tokyo bureau chief, Kana Inagaki, asked Masayoshi Son about the move. In previous quarters, even when there has been a decline in share price, it seems like the SoftBank's chief executive was reluctant to carry out share buyback. He said he still believes that the investments through the Vision Fund will pay off, but because the discount in the value of the assets has become so much bigger due to some of these issues with the Chinese crackdown, because he himself is a shareholder, he felt that this was a good buying opportunity for SoftBank shares, and therefore he decided to do the share buyback. And Kana says Sun made it clear that even after spending billions to buy back shares, the company would still have enough capital to continue investing. Part of that will be done through, for example, selling its investment through the Vision Fund and getting the returns through, for example, listings of its Vision Fund investments. But some long-term investors say the strategy is not really sustainable and that there needs to be a longer-term solution to lifting SoftBank share price. Kana Inagaki is the FT's Tokyo bureau chief. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. I say that pretty much at the end of every episode of the FT News Briefing. And if you don't have a subscription, you're probably like, well, I want to, Mark, but there's a paywall. Well, here's another reminder about our offer of free access to the FT and our social governance newsletter, More Money. It's a 30-day trial. Just go to ft.com slash cop26podcast. We've also put a link in the show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Stephen Nathan is with us as per always on a Tuesday. Stephen, you're on gardening leave. Now, not too many people understand what that means. Well, Alec, I certainly have time to to, to spend in the garden and not have to worry about uh, working. Uh, so I uh, specifically have a restraint.
so I'm just taking some some time off. Uh, a restraint, you always have a restraint around what's called a restraint business. So there's certain activities that you can't do, and that's normally uh, what you've been doing previously, what I did at 10X. Uh, so I can do some things, but I'm restrained from doing sort of the core business of of, of, of 10X. Uh, and garden leave often refers to when when someone leaves an employer and you might be serving a notice period, but there's a cooling off period where uh, you can't compete with your your uh, previous employer, uh, and that we call gardening leave or or, or cooling off. But it is a, a, a nice time. I had t- I had a year of that. Uh, well, supposedly a year, but after eight months, I went back to after I left MoneyWeb, and I said to the guys, "Come on, please, uh, I'm I'm going out of my head here. I need to start planning my life." Yours is a two-year restraint. So obviously you were a heck of a lot more important to 10X than I was to MoneyWeb. But the, the second point is, are well, you not getting a bit bored now and, and, and yeah. want to get your hands into, into something? Yeah. Or maybe not as clever as you were in, 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 in negotiating uh, a shorter period. But uh, yeah, no, you're right. You know, it does, uh, uh, the initial uh, sort of bliss of not having to work uh, and not having to worry about sort of work and clients and uh, and all those things that go with it. Uh, that novelty does wear, wear off. And I think one's got to be very disciplined because uh, if you're not disciplined, you can sort of waste a lot of the time. Um, but I've been quite productive uh, during during this period. Um, so um, yeah, it's been it's been good. But one has to be disciplined, and uh, I am sort of chomping at the bit to sort of get back into something at some stage. Hopefully, not too far in the future. Okay, well, we're going to get into something different now because coming up in our program, we have got two interesting stories. The first one uh, where Justin uh, examines what's going on with RB Platinum. It is a, a, a platinum mine in the Northwest province which had a takeover bid from Impala Platinum. And then this morning, Northam, another platinum company, put in a much higher takeover bid for RB Platts. So clearly the shareholders of RB Platts must uh, be delighted. But is this this kind of contested takeover bid is not something we see too often in the South African environment? Uh, yes, I think you know the fact that there's a takeover uh, is reasonably unusual in its you know in and of itself. Um, and it's great for what we call the target or the company that is uh, that 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 others want to acquire because they have to make it very compelling for the existing shareholders to part with their shares. Uh, and if you are acquiring a significant stake, and this is a significant stake, it's below 35%, uh, which would trigger an offer to all minorities, but it's about, I think, 33%. So so you've got to pay up for that. Um, so that's great, as you said, for RB Platt shareholders. And we've, we've already seen the share price react strongly to that. It was 95 Rand, roughly, uh, the RB Platt share price before uh, Implants made their first uh, uh, offer, or or they they said they were in negotiations, and now it's at about uh, roughly where's it now about 116, so it's up about 22 percent. What's interesting is the price of both uh, Implants uh, and Northern are actually down a little bit over the period. So it's kind of uh, you know those shareholders are having to pay up quite quite a quite a significant premium. Uh, so it might well, in fact, it's it's always better for the company who's getting the certainty of a premium being paid than the uncertainty of merger synergies hopefully coming through. What about Sibanya Stillwater? They've made most of the running when it comes to acquisitions in the South African platinum space. Do you think they could come to the party here? 
Yes, I think what's interesting with uh, RB Platts is that uh, management and the board are open. They're receptive to uh, to an offer from an acquirer. You know, if it was the case that uh, the company said, no, 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 you know, we've got everything under control. We've got a great uh, road ahead of us. You know, there's a lot of strategic opportunities. You know, we don't want any interference. We, you know, then then that's much more difficult because then you do things on a hostile basis. And it's always much more difficult uh, from a culture, from a synergies uh, to 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 sort of support a hostile bid. Um, and the fact that uh, that this is not hostile, that uh, uh, the board and management are open to other offers, as we saw, you know, initially it was implants, then Northern came along. So, so if this, um, uh, if it's unconditional, or let me rather say, if it's non-binding, uh, the current Northern, because what was interesting is that RB Platts put out a SENS announcement today, saying that uh, they're withdrawing their cautionary. Um, so there's no need for shareholders to exercise caution. There's nothing else that's going on at the moment that would, you know, maybe prejudice them if they bought or sold shares, not knowing that this was happening. So it's on the one hand, it seems to be that uh, Obi Platz is saying this is this is our final deal. Um, but if that isn't the case, then, you know, maybe Sabanya and others who are interested in this asset, you know, this is this is the best time to throw your hat in the ring. So there's a for sale sign up outside RB Platz. Anybody is invited to put their bid in. My goodness, a nice place to be if you're an RB Platts shareholder right now. Uh, another uh, interesting development is the appointment of Harry Smith to the board of Ascenders. Now, he has been a rather vocal activist against what was going on at Ascenders. And usually companies don't like this kind of uh, interference. And yet in Ascenders' case, they've, they've brought him onto the board. Is this a new maturing of the South African corporate scene or perhaps something a little different? Uh, well, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's a sample of one, so we can't really extrapolate uh, anything. But but as you say, you know, it's it's really positive to see a company embracing uh, an activist because, um, you know, activists have uh, sort of normally an, an axe to grind. They're normally quite critical. So they're not they're not sort of cheerleaders saying, you know, you guys are doing a great job. You guys and girls are doing a great job. You know, we fully support you. You know, it's the opposite, saying that we think you can do better uh, and we think that uh, you are not acting in the best interest of all shareholders and there's a, you know, some kind of a value trap. So, you know, it's great to see that uh, uh, that there can be a partnership between the activist who who uh, must be, certainly in the, in the eyes of the company, must be seen to be adding value and being, you know, being helpful uh, and and um, you know it's great to see that uh, that the company and the board and management can work together with shareholders uh, and you know hopefully unlock greater value than having conflict. It's a bit like we spoke about on the hostile the hostile takeover. You know whenever there's hostility, if it's a takeover, if it's a shareholder uh, uh, issue, you know that sort of negative energy and that negative focus. Uh, there tend to be very few winners. Lawyers tend to win in those situations, you know, but shareholders don't really win. So it's much better to see um you know this this partnership and uh, and as you say an open-minded and receptive board to criticism which probably in south africa we're not that great at doing it's also interesting to see that the ceo of ascendus mark sardi is now moving across to become chief operating officer at aspen i don't know if we're reading too much about this but he's he really he went in he fixed up ascendus uh, sold off what it needed to be sold etc and now he's going to another company in the same field where 
at some point in time, Gus Attridge and uh, and the his co-founder, uh, the CEO Stephen Saad, you'd think would be moving on from there. Might this be some very smart succession planning in the Aspen side? And I, I guess if you look at Aspen's shares as well, they've had a fantastic run this year. Uh, so maybe it's time, you know, if you if you're in Stephen Saad's shoes or Gus Attridge's shoes, you're probably sitting with so much. Uh, so much additional wealth that you might not have thought was going to happen that maybe you are looking to the future. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one, uh, I certainly don't know the backstory, you know, Mark Sardi coming into to, to Ascendus. It reminds me a little bit of sort of Stephen Van Koller coming into EOH. You know, you're both in companies that were once high-flying, you know, growing strongly, very highly rated by the market. Uh, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, uh, things have gone horribly wrong. And because you've got quite a lot of debt, both companies having quite a bit of debt, you know, you saw the share price fall over 90%. Uh, and it's never really clear if if sort of uh, management coming in are fully aware, you know, they have the full picture. Uh, and it's incredibly challenging uh, and stressful to go through that. And in, you know, once again, in both cases, you know, those businesses have been uh, turned around. Uh, and uh, as you say, Mark Sardi, I think at some stage, it looked as if the, uh, the equity could go to zero because the you know there was so much debt and the debt holders had the upper hand, um, and I think it's I think you know once you've gone through that uh, you know it might be you, you can kind of say listen I've done my bit here and I want to move on and I think the issue with an with, with ascenders it's a very small company well it's become a very small company you know you you tend to sell off the the crown jewels the great assets that can attract a good you know good prices in order for you to pay down your debt so you're a forced seller so it's never you know it's just not a positive environment and now you're sitting with ascenders the market cap of ascenders is uh, less than 500 million rand the market cap of aspen is over 100 billion you know so you're looking market value at a company that's more than 200 times the size uh, and you know for mark i guess you know there's probably you know an opportunity as you say you really come in at a very senior level you know and there's an opportunity to 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 climb further and to do that on a global scale. So you've got one business that's growing and internationalizing and, you know, you've got another business that's shrinking. And, you know, I, I guess it'll suit, suit a different kind of a CEO and different kind of a personality as to which, you know, which one you want to be on. So Stephen Collar should just hang in there. Who knows, he could get his 100 or his 200 times bigger job if he, uh, if he pulls EOH right in the way that he appears to be. Yeah, well, you create a profile. You know, I think in both both instances, you know, if you look at the media uh, publicity that both companies have got, you know, it's a lot more than their than their size would uh, would sort of warrant. You know, if we measure it, you know, that way. You look, there's many you know companies that are much much larger, uh, and no one really knows who's running them because you know things are more or less going okay. There aren't really any contentious issues, and this is in a in a sort of an ironic way. It's quite a good opportunity as a CEO if you get it right. <laughs> if you get it right, you know, you've now got a platform because people have, you know, they've been part of the journey because it's been very well documented in the media. You know, and that's probably better, you know, having that on your CV. You, 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 in fact, you wouldn't even need to put it on your CV. It's probably better than, you know, having a, a, a degree from an Ivy League university. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News. And with me today is veteran mining analyst Peter Major. Huge news from the mining sector today with Royal Buffer King rejecting Impala Platinum's takeover and opting a deal with Northam instead. What's going on here, Peter? Well, it looks to me like a case of money talks, Justin. If you see the price that Paul Dunn's willing to pay, 
I can see why um, Orby Platinum decided, let's go with someone else. Yeah, it seems like a bit of a crazy price, but I suppose this isn't just a cash deal. It's a share, it's a share deal as well. And if you're talking PEs, you can say, well, Northern Platinum's trading on almost the double PE that Lonman is. It's trading at double the PE that RB Plus trading on. So that's kind of the name of the game. If you can use high price paper to buy an asset at low price paper that's going to give you the similar earnings, you can justify it like that. I think Paul probably can. And Paul obviously has bigger ambitions than just running Northern and Boysendahl. I wouldn't doubt he's got visions to put the two companies together someday in one listing. Northern, as you say, paying a 50% premium of around 180 Rand for around a third of the company. Why are Royal Buffer King shares trading weaker on this news around the 115 Rand level? Uh, that I, I can't really explain yet, unless they just think the Northern price is going to come down so much that when they get the shares, it's going to counter it out. But, but I agree, yeah. When Impala announced the deal, it wasn't nearly as juicy. You, you saw it go up, what, 20% in one day. So I haven't worked through the numbers yet. The market's fairly efficient, but you can also see the northern price. You know, it dropped about 9 or 10%. Then it dropped as low as, I think, 16%. Went back to about 11 Now it's down 15%. So, it, yeah, a lot of guys are doing different permutations. And then whatever numbers you're doing on the companies, you have to look over your shoulder and say, what's my view of the commodity price? And until about a week ago, I thought these PGM metals were doing exactly what I thought until they turned around in the last week. Is it a bounce or is it now a change in trend? You know, is, is platinum going to go back up a little bit or maybe they're going to hold these levels, which are still very high. Um, yeah, you're looking at a lot of, a lot of moving pieces to try and value when should I buy and exit this company. Peter, you said last week that Impala's proposed acquisition of Royal Buffer King made sense and you could understand the rationale for the acquisition or the proposed acquisition. Are there any synergies between Northern and Royal Buffer King? There's not very many. They're obvious. It, it, it's, it's really different, Justin. I was, I was very surprised to see this. You know, Impala's share price dropped when they announced this, but you didn't have to look at it very close to say, Medium term, this is a good deal. Longer term, this is a great deal. And I think it was a good deal for both parties. You know, Baffa King would have been getting Impala script, but it, it really made deal, made sense for Impala. Much more attractive for Impala than it was probably for Baffa King, but it was creating a dynamo, a big player. And a lot of people have said Baffa King's unlikely to be on its own for another few years at the most. And so, yeah, it, it was easy to see the synergies. You know, Impala was right next to Baffa King. It had the smelter arrangements, the refinery. It had the marketing, um, logistics. Um, yeah, yeah, they were neighbors. It, it, you could tick a lot of boxes. This made good sense. Whereas with Northern, you know, they're a long ways off and Northern doesn't have the refining capabilities that Impala Platinum does. Um, it's got a very good MD, but I, I, I can't wait to talk to Paul about this. You know, whether he's going to tell me any more than the market, probably not. 
But I'd love to know when did he start thinking about this? Probably about the day he read about Impala doing it in the paper. But no, Paul's probably thought about this before. And the Impala announcement made him realize, I got to get off my duff if I want this. But he's paid a premium. So the big RB Platinum shareholder drove a hard deal here. Um, that, very that, good deal. That was my next question, Peter. How long in advance was this kind of deal, a deal of this size for Northern, 20% of its market cap? Do you think that this was merely a reaction from Impala's bid around 10 days ago? No, I think the price is definitely a reaction of what Impala did. I don't think Paul would have paid anywhere close to this price had he been first in line. But I, I don't know when he was thinking about this, and I can't believe he just thought about it after Impala went in. Or, or hell, maybe, maybe he did. Maybe he said, Impala's getting this thing way too cheap. I'm prepared to pay more than that because I see long-term synergy, long-term consolidation, and, and I do need to build a bigger company, you know? Even Northern and Boysendahl, it's organic growth, which is the way most fund, funders and asset managers like to see. We like to see organic growth. It's measured. It's cost effective. You know, this merger and acquisition growth, way more often than not, it destroys value than makes it. So, yeah, I, I honestly don't know. I, I'm, I'm being stupid guessing what Paul was thinking and when he was thinking it. Um, but he's... He's paid a premium here. It's almost a Johnny-come-lately premium to get the deal done. You know, that's what it looks like at face value. I can't wait to get the real story. What are the benefits of consolidation in the mining industry? Is it simply just a result of investment scale, uh, economies of scale? Look, you've got to be larger to be attractive to big asset managers. You've got to be much larger to be attractive to international asset managers. You know, people are managing funds, gargantuan funds nowadays. So your company's got to be in multi-billions now to be considered. And our, our poor mining industry, they used to blame apartheid for the poor ratings. Well, now they can blame the, the, the ANC for the poor ratings because, yeah, nobody thought they'd have poorer ratings than during the apartheid era. But... When you look at the ratings of our mining companies, you know, the guys are, are, are worried about it because why work your tail off and have such a subpar rating? You know, the cost of capital is so high and it shows you're not very attractive for people. And, and art, the, the, the job description of a good CEO on a board is get the rating up, get, get your paper at a, a proper PE rating so you can grow. You can make acquisitions with script instead of always borrowing money or substituting dividends or, or, or begging money through rights issues. And yet, unfortunately, any of the mining companies working here, they've got this, this continual avalanche of bad news, you know, from Eskom, Transnet, politics, um, additional BE, triple B legislation, another NPRDA, another amendment to the uh, Equity um, Amendment Act. It, it just, it goes on and on. So companies here have to grow or they will die. And you grow, you can only grow so fast organically. You've got to grow on mergers and acquisitions here to do it in, in a normal lifespan. 
Peter, is that why our local mining counters trade at such low valuations, such low multiples, because of all the inherent economic problems such as ESCOM, such as Transnet, uh, compared to their global counterparts? Look, without a, just, without a doubt, Justin, you know, we, we looked across the water for decades at companies that we thought were not nearly well as run as ours, that never seemed to have a balance sheet like ours, and hardly ever had the kind of resources we had. And it was only, it wasn't attributable to the infrastructure, it wasn't attributable to the weather or the ore deposits. We got fantastic weather here, fantastic ore deposits, great. We still got good infrastructure. We had everything here that needed to be done for long life mines, except we had apartheid, you know, and we had a government that wasn't able to show investors the way out. It wasn't a democratically elected government. So you know that can't last. And none of us could wait. We, we were in such a rush for 1994. We were hoping it was going to be in 84, in 87. You know, we always were praying it was going to be this year, this year. And it finally came, but it hasn't translated to what any of us wanted. Whatever our race, creed, color was, what we have today is not what any of us wanted. And it, it's raised the cost of capital. It's chased away investors. Our infrastructure is being plundered, run into the ground. So mining companies here, you know, you're running a mining company. Your duty is to your employees and your shareholders. It's to give them life, to give them a 50-year a life instead of a 10 or 20-year life, to give them a future. And to do that, you have to grow. You have to bring in investment. And the only way to do that is, as Neil Froneman's shown, you got to get larger and you got to go offshore. You got to do what it takes to appeal to the people with money that invest in companies to help them grow. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Over the past few days, a flurry of negotiations have started taking place as the leading parties started coalition talks after the 2021 local government elections resulted in 66 hung councils, with the ANC dipping below 50% of the vote for the first time in post-apartheid South Africa. To help us unpack what the results mean, joining us is academic and political analyst Dr. Pete Crocom. What is your take on the coalition talks, and can we look in your crystal ball to see what's going to happen next? Well, I think uh, most of these parties are now in a, in a rather tight spot. Once the ANC dipped below 50% of national support, it changed the whole political game. Now political parties look to the future as a possibility of unseating the ANC. In the past, you uh, participate in the election, uh, especially local government election, you win a number of seats, and then you have another election where you know the ANC will win and you manage your affairs accordingly. In other words, your strategy the individuals who will lead the party against the scenario of the future. But it was always a scenario with the ANC right at the heart. Now, South Africans, the ANC, and most opposition political parties must get their head around, 
how do you restructure yourself and the political landscape with a future without the ANC? And you will see, I think, the DA and most of these political parties, they don't want to re-empower the ANC over the next two and a half years until there's another national election where they suspect the ANC will get will come in below 50. So if you go in, into any form of a coalition agreement with the ANC, which can make them look good or better, you actually undermine the likeliness of the ANC dipping below 50% again. And that changes the, the, the philosophy behind coalitions completely. So where do you see the coalition forming? Is it going to be around philosophy? No, it's, it's going to be pragmatic. I think the political parties with a low standing, in other words, small support base, they would love to become part of any coalition because that gives them some form of authority in, in local government. The bigger ones, and I think that's the EFF, Action South Africa, the DA, they will be very reluctant to go into any form of coalition that will strengthen the ANC. Even the EFF wouldn't want to do that. So I can imagine that if there's not a coalition between the DA, Action South Africa, and some of the smaller parties, we might end up with a number of governments that are minority governments, and that's going to be very difficult. You can't pass a budget with a minority government. It's going to be extremely difficult to, to form an executive committee. So we have two weeks to sort this problem out. I don't think two weeks will be enough. I I can't imagine that we will get our house in order within the next two weeks to solve this problem. As it is, I think here in in Pretoria, I think there's a DA Action South Africa coalition. Johannesburg, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, a lot more difficult. It all depends here. The kingmakers here will be the EFF. The ANC is very reluctant to go into bed with the EFF because some people make the mistake of saying there are two factions. They're not two factions, but they are, there's a seriously compromised division of individuals within the ANC that to some extent feel a political affinity for the EFF. And if you go into some sort of a compromise or a coalition with them, it is very likely that those two, call it ideas, set of ideas, may just merge and cause further instability within the ANC. So from the top management, I know the top six, they are very reluctant to go into any agreement with the EFF. But if it means that that's the only way to access power and authority, they might Mm -hmm. compromise on that too. So I can only see an agreement between the EFF and the ANC and Action South Africa, the DA and the smaller parties. Those are the two natural coalition forces I could see. The EFF did speak to the ANC over the weekend, um, but the EFF has demands and it probably would mean that the ANC would shift its policy more towards its RAT faction, wouldn't it, if they start cooperating with the EFF? Yeah, I I think the fear for the ANC is somewhere else. It it is that the the EFF will demand the speaker position, for instance. It could even be that they demand a softening of the ANC stand on land, which they already said so. But I think that there's another area which is much more damaging for the ANC, and that is what has happened in Johannesburg when Herman Mashaba had a coalition with the EFF. They demand yeah. access to tenders. They demand access to infrastructure that distribute the, the resources of the state. They want to get involved in the distributive network of the state. And that's where it becomes really, really dangerous. Normally, coalitions, the minority parties don't directly get involved into that. But the EFF, they've demanded to do so under Herman Mashaba. And they will do so again. And in the past, that is where massive corruption took place uh, in Johannesburg. And you can't avoid it. Once you're with the EFF, uh, once you're in bed with them, you cannot avoid their involvement in the tenders and the distributive networks of the resource base of the municipality. So the agreements are going to be really interesting. Herman Schaber did really well. Can the bad blood between him and the DAs be swept aside? 
has already said that he's willing to talk to the DA. The DA, for some other reason, are very reluctant to talk to him. Again, and I think it's with the eye on the 2024. As it is now, remember, the Action South Africa stood in only six areas in South Africa. They got more votes than the Freedom Front. They took votes away from the DA, from uh, the ANC, but also from the EFF. In Soweto, they took some votes away from even the EFF, which means they are, uh, in terms of demographics and class, they seem to have the broadest possible base of representation. If they just continue doing what they do now and they just do that well, they will overtake the DA as the second biggest party in South Africa by far in the 2024 election. So if the DA go into a collision with them, they actually strengthen a political party which they know will be the main contender, apart from the ANC, the main contender in 2024. So the question that they ask themselves is, do we want, as as part of this coalition, do we want to strengthen our opposition in 2024? I don't think they will have much chance of avoiding it. But uh, that's, I think that's a big fear. So, Herman Mashaba, what should he do or should he not do if he wants to increase support on national level? Well, he's been around for around about a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody saw this coming. So, obviously, he's doing something very, very right. If you're a South African, a black South African, and you voted ANC, and you're extremely unhappy with service delivery, you're extremely unhappy with corruption, and most people make the mistake of not reading the extent of dissatisfaction and anger about corruption in South Africa, because poor people think the reason why they're poor is because of corruption. The reason why they can't find jobs and the, the circumstances on which they live is so dismal. It's got to do with corruption. And what Herman Mashaba says is, first of all, I will stop the corruption. But the most important thing is for most South Africans, most black South Africans, there was just no alternative. Herman Mashaba is the first alternative for a lot of black South Africans. There's no stigma to him. It is a black political party and it's somebody that's against corruption and it's somebody that touches a nerve in the informal political economy, which is massive in South Africa. And he spoke to them directly. That's where he got his support base. Well, let's get to Cyril Ramaphosa. What does this all mean for him? Is the RET faction within the ANC going to try to get rid of him? Well, there must be a contender first. Next year, uh, December, they have leadership election. Uh, we know Lynn Davis is, is interested. The deputy president, uh, David Mabuza, uh, might have been interested, but he's lost so much support within the ANC. He's not a contender anymore. Uh, Lynn Davis is not really a contender. There's just nobody else. They will have to go with him to 2024. The important thing is, I think it's been said so many times before, in 2019, we know that on the, the national ballot, the ANC got 600,000 more votes than on the provincial ballot. And that was all attributed to the presence of Ramaphosa. So there is the feeling that without him, we will definitely lose the election. With him, we're in big trouble. So I don't think he's going to go anywhere, no. So yes, it's going to be interesting negotiations. And you say two weeks is probably not going to be enough. So if you look at your crystal ball, what do you think is going to happen in the next election? I think that the ANC will dip below 50% again. It will be enormously difficult to put together a coalition of partners, but the reward is so high if you can take over government that I think former enemies will suddenly jump into bed with each other. It's not impossible that the DA say, well, okay, let's go into an arrangement with the EFF again because we can unseat the ANC at last. 
But I think the EFF is going to dip below 10% in the next election. They will be around about 8%. The DA will be around about 15%. I suspect Action South Africa can go up as high as 25%. The IFP is going to do a lot better than even now. Uh, they will be coming around about 10, 12, 13%. They, they support, and we already see an exponential increase in their support. It was in Natal, it will increase in, in Gauteng as well. They will come in higher. And then I think there's a real possibility of a coalition government coming together. If I'm the ANC, I expect to lose the next election because uh, unless they do something really, really radical, and it's not possible to turn the economy around in two and a half years. It's not possible to get unemployment below 30% in two and a half years. It's not uh, possible to broaden the tax base sufficiently to make a big change in people's lives in the next two and a half years. They will have to go into the election what they have now. And that's not a very good on the very strong hand. If nothing changes, Herman Mashaba could be the next president of South Africa. There is a future without the ANC. Whether it will be a better future, that's another question. It can become incredibly unstable. It yeah. could mean that, that violence plays a much bigger role than that election. Remember, if the ANC has everything to lose, they yeah. will put everything in the fight too. It's not certainty where we go heading to. It's change that we're heading to. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Harry Scherzer, the CEO of Future Forex. Firstly, Harry, tell me a little bit about the background and origins of Future Forex and how all of this came about. So here at Future Forex, we do something called crypto arbitrage. Now, what that effectively means is that we facilitate the process of sending money offshore, buying crypto offshore, sending the crypto to South Africa and selling it in South Africa for a profit. And the reason we're able to do so is because cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin trade at a premium of 2 to 5% in South Africa relative to abroad. Now, back when I started this, Justin, in 2017, uh, I was doing this for myself and making 30% returns. Uh, they were extraordinary, the difference in prices. I managed to find this by simply looking at the price on, for example, Luno and comparing it to the price of, for example, on, for example, Kraken or Binance abroad and seeing that there was a 30% difference. Now, obviously that margin has decreased tremendously, but it hasn't been eliminated completely. So my business partner and I did this in our personal capacities and made loads of money from it with these enormous margins. But over time, these margins have narrowed, but we've realized that the way to make we don't only have to make money for ourselves here. We can make money for the public in general by doing exactly the same thing for them. And that's what we've incorporated on since the beginning of 2020. What are the returns like now, given that the arbitrage has decreased somewhat? Because the, the gap in the market is down to between 2 and 5%, that translates to net of all fee returns of between 1% and 3% to clients. Um, of that 1% to 3% return... That's per trade. And because you can do multiple trades a year, it's not difficult to get returns north of 100% a year in a single calendar year, which is what makes this a really incredible investment, is that you can use the same money and repeatedly trade it over and over again to make exceptional returns over time. Just walk us through the process of crypto arbitrage, how it exactly works, and also how it may differ to buying individual cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. Justin, I'll start with your second question relating to how is this different to buying Bitcoin, to buying Ethereum. 
Now, in a market where you want to buy a crypto directly, you can make fantastic returns if the crypto doubles in price, but you can just as easily lose half your money if the crypto halves in price. And we've seen both of these events occur in the near, uh, in the recent past. Now, where we differ is we take the risk completely out of uh, the crypto fluctuation and instead profit purely of a market inefficiency that we're able to capitalize on. They're therefore making money off the crypto space, but without the associated risk. So what we do effectively is we've hedged the entire process start to finish. So there'll be no Forex risk, no uh, cryptocurrency risk. Those are both completely mitigated by our systems so that you can ensure you make returns, predictable returns every time you cycle. Onto your first question, which is to take us through the process. So the process is very clear. We try to make this process as passive as possible for clients. So what we do is we assist in setting up a bank account locally. We then use our trading algorithms to send the money abroad, buy crypto abroad, send the crypto to South Africa and sell it in South Africa at a profit for clients. We will always give a clients, uh, clients a heads up of when they, when they're trading and if they'd like to trade and the minimum requirements they would require to trade. So once you've set everything up initially, which you are guided through with a relationship manager who's an expert in the field, from then on, it's as passive as you're going to get in an investment of this type with these exceptional returns. What are the risks for myself as a prospective investor? I do understand that any investment that generates some sort of return has some sort of risk. That's a fantastic question. And typically the risks would be the Forex exposure, the cryptocurrency exposure, as well as any third party risk with um, potential third parties being used. Those first two market risks being the Forex risk and the crypto risk, we've completely eliminated through our trading systems. So in other words, we can predictably tell you before you even trade what you're going to earn, regardless of what happens to cryptocurrency, regardless of what happens to Forex. And the reason for that is that we lock into um, prices at the onset to make predictable returns. The third party counter risks, while we can't complete, uh, counterparty risks, while we can't completely mitigate these risks, what we can do is manage them to the best of our potential. And we've managed to do this by number one, handpicking the best and most trusted third parties, but number two, never exposing ourselves to more or ourselves or our clients money to more risk than required. As an example, one of our local partners, we will pay them in tranches. So as we first wait for them to withdraw our funds before paying them the next tranche. And this ensures that the funds are mitigated, the, the risk is mitigated in such a way that if our third party were to go bust, they would never be holding on to enough money to damage us um, significantly. And we'd be able to assist in paying out our clients for that leg of the journey. So being an actuary myself, it is very important to me to manage third-party risks to the best of my ability, and I believe we have done so within our operation. Does Future Forex make money regardless of the fluctuations of the volatility in the asset class? We are actually completely immune to upwards or downwards fluctuations. What we've done is we've locked into prices up front, which means that if the cryptocurrencies were to go up 30%, unfortunately, we don't share in those profits. But by the same logic, if the cryptocurrencies go down 30%, we don't get hurt by any of those negative fluctuations. And what this means is more consistent returns for our clients, surety of returns, that the lack of fear that by the time you buy a cryptocurrency, for example, Bitcoin, 
we know that Elon Musk could tweet something at that very moment, resulting in a 40% drop. And we needed to protect our clients from that and have managed to do so. Well, thanks for being with us today. And we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow. Same time, same place uh, from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.